long years ago, we made a tryst with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new. It is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger cause of humanity. Hello and welcome to India Colonized, a podcast dedicated to South Asia's modern and contemporary history. You are listening to Guftugu, a special series where we discuss and engage with authors and scholars of South Asian history. In this episode of Guftugu, we have with us Dr. Jessica Namakar, author of the book Unsettling Utopia, Making and Unmaking of French India. Dr. Jessica Namakal is an assistant professor of the practice in International Comparative Studies, History, Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies at Duke University. Jessica Namakal's Unsettling Utopia gives us a new version of 20th century French India's history. It demonstrates how colonial developments continued even after official decolonization kicked in. The book presents to analyze the colonial histories of the Aurobindo Ashram and Oroville, demonstrating how state-sponsored decolonization is rarely associated with local demands. She suggests that their ongoing growth reveals how decolonization unfortunately resulted in new settling spaces which ended up preserving colonial control. This book puts into question the long-held scholarly argument on the time and place of decolonization. Unsettling Utopia rightly puts the spotlight on colonialism's legacies and provides striking thoughts on what decolonization might yet involve. This interview explores and examines provided stances in the book along with other broader perspectives on decolonization. Here's the conversation with Dr. Jessica Namakal. Hello, Dr. Jessica Namakal. Hello and welcome to India Colonized and the series of Kuftiku. Today we'll be engaging with your book, Unsettling Utopia, The Making and Unmaking of uh, French India. Well, before we can actually start to uh, discuss about the book, I had a couple of biographical questions, the first of which is, what is the kind of intellectual journey that you had? If you could tell us about your intellectual journey, the books that influenced you, people who've influenced you and in taking up, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Omar. It's such a great project to be involved with. Um, so my intellectual journey, I have a PhD in history from the University of Minnesota. Um, I became interested, I, I would say I've been interested in history you know, my whole life. Um, and but one of the things I try to do in my work is really make um, academic history a little bit more accessible. Um, I don't you can be the judge if that works or not. Um, but but because I think there really is a, um, a sometimes very problematic 
divide between what is sort of seen as public history or more popular history um, and academic history. And obviously um, what happens in the academy is um, so important. You know, people have more resources a lot of the time to be going to archives. Something I, you know, I, I really highlight in this book is that to, to study French India, you have to be able to travel to archives all over the world, right? And that takes money and it takes time. Um, so uh, so that that's one of the reasons that uh, academic history um, becomes uh, sort of the focal point. But, you know, history is important to all of us. I think it's, it's a discipline that we, um, you know, people, uh, no matter if they've gone to university, um, no matter their level of education, have some sort of relationship to. So, I mean, I, I, I went to um, undergraduate at the University of Southern California and actually went there for a film school, wanted to be a documentarian, um, ended up doing some anthropology. And in anthropology, I actually became really disillusioned um, with academia sort of in general, because, you know, when you study the history of anthropology, you just see how deeply rooted colonialism is in, in all academic disciplines. But anthropology, um, so explicitly so. <laughs> You know, um, and, and, you know, the discipline has done a lot to sort of confront this over the years, but um, I became really interested in the history of anthropology and that led me to be, you know, interested in the history of state, state making, colonialism, empire, um, knowledge production. Um, so that's, that's sort of where I started. Um, I, I didn't go directly into graduate school. I worked in museums for a few years. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, you know, the, I don't know if this will be interesting to your listeners, but I decided to go to, into a PhD program largely because I just wanted to read and write and be taken seriously while doing so. <laughs> And I, you know, it's a, it's a place where you can do that. Um, I was listening to some other episodes of India colonized and, and noted, um, you know, people pointing out how bad the academic job market it is. And it is, it's terrible. Um, and what I actually tell my students is, you know, if you want to um, read and write and think and need the space to do that and aren't, um, won't be devastated if you don't get a job as a professor and it's still um, an, a good place to go to graduate school. And that, that's honestly what I did. Um, I just wanted to be able to do that. And I, and I went in thinking I would study empire. I wasn't too sure where. Um, one of my mentors at the University of Minnesota, Patricia Lorson, is a French historian whose first book is in Algeria and uh, sort of noted that there had been less people working on uh, Francophone empire than on British empire. Uh, my father is from uh, Secunderabad, um, India. So I had this relationship to India already. And um, so I started also working in, in South Asian history and, and just found the field so exciting and interesting. Um, so I sort of ended up uh, looking on French India because I was working with someone who worked on France and then um, was also working with uh, um, someone who's a part of the Subaltern Studies Collective, that's Ajay Scaria at Minnesota. Um, and so by working with both of them, I ended up uh, working on French India. Um, so that brought me to the location. But it was it was really um, more the themes that I was looking mm -hmm. at than, than the location itself. All right, that's wonderful. I mean, um, yeah, we, we 
one of the things that we try to discuss with people on our podcast is definitely the idea of how difficult academia can be and also deconstructing the the, the whole academic approach basically breaking it down to um, youngsters and other people to get them interested to work because it's kind of like an ivory tower that you know it's just for the academicians and then there's only the the, the two different popular history is different and academic history is different which is it's kind of the gap that um, this project is also trying to fill in. Um, so could you tell us, our audience, a bit about the uh, theme of your book, the theme that your book explores? Yeah, yeah there's, um, so, you know, the the book is about French India. Uh, most, most, of, uh, most of what has been written about French India tends to focus on the early empire, right? Um, so the, you know, I think the number one question people have is, what was France doing in India? Well, they were doing the same thing everybody else was doing in India, right? In the 17th century, they were starting to trade. Um, so, um, you know, my book looks at the 20th century largely, um, and I'm, I'm really interested in decolonization. And so that was my starting point with the book. Um, it became sort of um, about something much more. And that's because, you know, there, there's, you know, speaking of a split between popular understandings of things and academic understandings of things, sort of this tension between work that's done in post-colonial studies, in what is called decolonial studies, um, and then you have the actual histories of decolonization, right, of, of what happened um, as, as, as groups of people fought for independence from colonial rule. So I set out um, sort of to, to, to look to be working within these academic fields of postcolonial studies and decolonial studies, but to also be looking at decolonization. And those things actually don't always go together. Um, so I was working to bring them all together because I, I think um, one of the things the book is really trying to do is to show that um, no matter where you are in the world, decolonization is an ongoing process. And it's, a, it's an event that was not completed. And some sort of political histories um, and work by political scientists of the era, but also political histories have treated decolonization as an as a event that is finished. Right. Um, India's independence, 1947. Uh, there's constitution in 1950. We're, we're good. Right. Um, now everything is India's problem. Right. So which, you know, to some extent is true, but um, but there's so much left out of the story. Uh, so that that's the that's one of the themes. And one of the um, way that I go about doing this and this gets us to the title of, of uh, Unsettling Utopia is to think about um, the different populations that came to dominate uh, life in really Pondicherry. You know, French India is actually five um, different areas. And I really concentrate on Pondicherry, the largest, um, with, with a good amount of detail, Chachananagar um, up in uh, Bengal, um, but mostly those two. Um, and there are things to be said about the other areas, but, uh, and, and the reason I do it is because um, so just something, you know, life was different there than in other parts of colonial India, and in a way that I think is really interesting. Um, so the utopia in the title actually refers to multiple conceptions of utopia. And one is that of the people who lived under French colonial rule in India, who were largely Tamil, um, but also Bengali, um, <laughs> and also, well, identities changed, um, but um, uh, also had other uh, linguistic and, and cultural affiliations. Um, was that people were allowed to become French citizens beginning in 1881. Um, and some, some, you know, a good amount of people did. And this is just, um, 
the attachment that people formed to France was very different than what happened in British India, right? Because England never offered people citizenship and they didn't, you know, people weren't citizens in England either. Right. So it's a di this different um, conception of what it meant to belong. And this comes from the French Revolution. And France really um, propped itself up as sort of a utopian space. Right. Of, of, civ of civ civic participation. Right. Of individual liberty. Um, and people were sort of given rights that they weren't given in other parts of colonized India, right? Um, so there's this idea that France is this liberated space, and we see what happens when people go there. Um, but, you know, that plays pretty well for the French in French India for a certain amount of time. So that's one sense of utopia. And then the other sense of utopia is the utopian ideals formed by um, the Sri Aurobindo Ashram and then eventually Oroville, which is a project that comes out of the ashram, established in 1968. Um, and the ashram and Oroville are both projects that include um, Europeans, um, you know, primarily uh, beginning in the ashram with, with a woman named Mira Alfaso, or the mother, who's French, um, but lots of other people that come to live there, and then people from greater India as well who come there and sort of see the space of French India as a place to experiment and do do some other things. And we can get into that if you want to, but, um, but those are the two different sort of ideas of utopia that are being formed, and they're both related to something of a French republicanism. Right. Um, and so uh, I, 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 you know, my my argument is that all utopian ideas have material consequences and that we should look at what those material consequences are for the good and for the bad. Right. And so that's sort of what the unsettling is about there. Well, that's quite interesting. And uh, we'll try covering quite uh, parts of those um, the ideas of, of utopia. You know, questions. So coming to the next question, um, what was the approach and methodology that you applied in, in this work and how was it different than what is existing in, in that space and how much work, like even academic, academically, how much um, attention has been paid of French colonialism and these, the, especially the idea of French space in, in India? Yeah, again, you know, most of the um, the work is on earlier time periods. I, you know, part of that, um, what I saw and what I argue is part of that is because sort of once 1947 happens, um, everything else gets subsumed under that. So in histories of decolonization of India, which is really, you know, histories of independence, there's not really a movement for decolonization. It's an independence movement. Um, you know, it's it's uh, French India gets just woven into the story, and it it's really um, um, it it seems like a predetermined end, right? That it's obvious that these areas will become part of India. You know, even Nehru spoke like this, like just be patient, we'll come get you. But people were really. Um, you know, actively debating joining the French Union, which is much like the British Commonwealth. Um, this idea put forth by the French Fourth, um, for the Constitution of the Fourth Republic, that people should be able to join this federation, this federated union of France. So there's a lot of debates about what the future actually looks like. Um, and that just hadn't really been covered at all. Um, so I went in to look at that. Um, but, you know, I then I, you know, if that's sort of my starting point, I go then, um, you know, forward and backwards in, in history to, to get there. And, you know, so in terms of methodology, 
um, historians are funny about method, but I <laughs> I'd place my my work um, somewhere as a as a a combination of political and cultural history. Um, and I, I've also really been greatly influenced by work in human geography. I mean, space is really important to this uh, to this history, right? Um, because both because the five territories of French India are so spread out, but also because they are fractured, especially Pondicherry within front within its own space. Um, so I, I really drew on works of people who have theorized space. Um, and what that means to mobility um, and migration. So um, there's like a, it's, it's interdisciplinary in that sense, I would say. Yeah. Um, so what were the kind of limitations that you uh, hit, especially in cases of archival material or was, was really there something that you came across maybe a post-publication that you wanted to include or, you know, because it, it is kind of an ongoing process. So were, were you able to stumble on something that, that could have added to the narrative of the book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tried to cover a lot of ground in the book, you know, in that sense, you know, there's, you can go sort of the micro history route or sort of more of an expansive view. And I, I like straddle the line a little bit, but I think, you know, I, I would, if I were to um, like make this twice as long or something, I think there's much more to be said about um, the voice, the sort of voices of people who lived in, in these areas, right? I have some of it, but it's mostly political leaders. Right. It's big names. It's the leaders of political parties. Um, right. So there's not that much about sort of like what life was like for women in Pondicherry. Um, like I would love to find more sources about that. Um, I think so much also of this, what happens and has happened post um, 1962 when the French were officially out of India had to do with educational systems. And that isn't something I focused on at all. But um, I think you know, looking at how schools developed from sort of the French convent schools to what happens with the ashram schools and then eventually the Oroville schools um, is actually an incredibly interesting question that I would love to know more about. Um, and, you know, I, the limit, you know, in terms of limitate, my own limitations, I mean, part of it is time and resources, but I worked primarily in archives in multiple archives in France, including the colonial archives in X, um, in the, of course, the British Library, um, in the India office, and then in the Pondicherry State Archives and the Oroville Archives. Um, I think that if I uh, went to Chennai and looked at the police records there, I probably would get um, also a greater sense of the Tamil, uh, anti-colonial Tamil people who were hiding out in Pondicherry. Like, I think there's a lot more to be said about them um, and interesting projects there. But um, yeah, so there, there's all kinds of things that, that could be added in here. But uh, I, you know, and I, I will say one thing that started as a dissertation, which I finished in 2013. Um, and a, a, a lot of the decolonization files from the French side didn't open until 2014. So I actually, oh. I, so the book has those because I went back after the dissertation and did more research. Um, okay. That, you know, that's because it, it didn't happen that long ago, right? And there's, you know, these, um, these years placed on them when they can be declassified. So I actually got them right when they opened. Um, and I think that trip was 2015 that I did that. So I got those, um, all of the sort of police files that I have in there weren't open while I was dissertating. 
So time can make a big difference when doing doing more recent history, historical research. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, so um, what what are things that you were not able to include uh, because of publicational um, limitations that that you wanted to be on? Yeah, you know, I had a lot of really, really great images that were all from newspapers, um, mm-hmm. mostly the Hindu, <laughs> but other, and I just couldn't get the rights um, to publish them. My favorite one is a photo um, taken in 1953 on the border between French India and Pondicherry in India. Um, and something that happened um, right after India's liberation in 1947 is that in French India, they banned protests. They just saw what was going to happen, right? Um, partly because of people that lived in French India, but, um, you know, as the cover of the book shows, there's, um, you know, the borders for French India often were just rows of stones that went through villages, right? Um, so they they knew that even people on the other side might start agitating for liberation, for inclusion in the, the Indian Union. So they banned protests. So what happens is you get these huge manifestations and uh, people gather at the border and then yell into French India, right? Um, so I actually have a picture of this from the Hindu. It's 1952 or 1953. Um, and you can just, it's just a huge crowd of people and it's so far back, you can't see. And then the, the, the line that's holding them back is French Indian police, right? And they're, they're sort of acting as the border there. Um, so there, there is like a lot of visual representation of, of some of the issues I talk about that I, that I could get um, permission to use. Um, For the chapter that's about people going to um, moving to to Paris, right? If I had had time, I would have loved to do oral histories um, with the diaspora. And I just, you know, had to limit the project somewhere that I didn't. Yeah, this isn't because I didn't have publication rights. But um, yeah, but I also think that would um, that would be incredibly interesting to, to to engage with more. I think yeah, that's that's actually one of the things that um, I've I've been thinking of asking authors while uh, during these conversation is I think one aspect that is rarely covered is the difficulty of getting the work published. Yeah, um, I think that is not often talked about. It's it's like one of those dark things, like how academia is not, you know, is is uh, could not you you cannot afford your life probably in it being in academia is, is one of the things that is not uh, largely talked about that. Uh, you know, getting your work published and what does it take to publish in a um, you know, quality publication house and uh, getting your work accepted and everything. But I, th- I mean, if you're okay with it, this is the first time we're asking the question on the show. If you want to talk about um, what was it like getting your work published? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these projects take such a long time, right? Um, so again, I, I defended this dissertation, I guess, in December 2012. Um, and so it just came out in 2021, right? Some of that was life things, you know, having a baby and things like this. But, um, you know, also it was doing this additional research, having time to write the new research into it, revising basically the whole thing, <laughs> workshopping the new parts with people. 
Um, and, you know, I'm at, I'm at Duke University, a very well-resourced university that did things like had a manuscript workshop for me where I got to bring in um, scholars to comment on it, you know, which is, which is great. It also means more revisions after that. Um, and, and the way I, you know, I'm happy to talk about it, the way it worked for me, um, my book is at Columbia University Press in the Global and International History series, um, which is a series co-edited, um, and one of the people, one of the co-editors, uh, Jamil Aiden, A-Y-D-I-N, he's great. Um, I know him uh, because he's local at UNC Chapel Hill and has just been a, a great mentor and helped get this book um, to publication. So he came to that workshop. He put me in touch with the editors at Columbia. Um, and, you know, it, then it goes out for review. You finish it, you send it, they send it to review to reviewers. You know, several months go by, you get feedback, you revise again. And then finally, they give you a contract. Yeah. <laughs> and it works a little bit differently, um, but that's generally how it how it works. Some some presses have another layer of, of peer review on mm -hmm. it. Um, and, you know, it can not make it through the peer review stage. It can make it, you know, and then <laughs> after that, there's more, you know, it goes to copy yeah, editors, right. it goes to page proof. So uh, it's a it's a it's a long process. But, um, you know, with I, I did do it through someone. Like I didn't cold call an editor, but that is something you can do. And I know lots of editors who say you should, right? Um, uh -huh. uh, especially if you have sort of a manuscript already to send emails, not calls, emails <laughs> uh, to ask. But it, but it is, uh, you know, to, to the listeners and, and viewers, you know, it's, it's just really important to actually look at the press and see if they're publishing work like yours. Right. Um, I, I think it's so important to just look at your bookshelf or, you know, um, the books that you've read and really admired and look at who's publishing them. Right. Um, because, you know, that that is a press that's going to take your work seriously um, and that, you know, people who are reading these other books then might stumble across yours um, because it, it's there. You know, they, when it's a series like this, it can it can be part of a bigger intellectual project to build, yeah. in this case, global history. Definitely. Um, so let's start on questions about the book itself. So one of the questions we had was the image of British imperialist in comparison to the French imperialist. Like, um, you know, in, in this image of quote-unquote good imperialists and what were the contradictions in these, in this image of, of um, the good imperialist. So if you can break that down for the sake of audience, yeah. Sure, of course. So, um, you know, India, of course, is, was a very important colony to the British. I think that doesn't need to be explained. Um, and, you know, France um, really lost any chance of having more control um, in South Asia by the end of the um, 19th century. No, sorry, end of the uh, 18th century. So, uh, you know, during the Seven Years' War in the 18th century, it went, you know, Pondicherry went back and forth. Pondicherry is very close to Chennai. So, you know, as the um, British were building up there in the 1700s, the French really thought maybe they had a chance to um, to battle with them for the area. And this was all these hopes were gone. Pondicherry became what it was in 1814. Um, and, and when it was signed back over in one of the Treaty of uh, Paris's, Paris, um, they, uh, they agreed to never have a military presence. 
So the idea of greater power was gone by 1814, right? They could have a police, but that was it. So what do you do, right? Why does France continue to have India is the question. Um, and others, um, other people, Jyoti Mahan and her book, oh gosh, what's it called? Imagining India. I feel really bad if I got that wrong. Um, you can look that up. Uh, talk, talks about, um, you know, the idea of India was sort of a failed empire for the French. Um, but it, it was because India was so important and because, you know, France doesn't really start expanding into what is known as their newer colonies until after this point. So, you know, um, it, it's 1838 is when they occupy Algeria. Um, it's not until uh, much later, decades later, that they go into Indochina. So India, like having a presence in India means they sort of still have a foot in the game, right? As, as they start to do more expansion. Um, and it's always sort of used as a trading piece for, for the French. So in all of these deliberations, um, diplomatic discussions in the 19th century, there's sort of, sort of a, well, we'll trade you this piece in Morocco for this piece in South India, you know? Um, so it's, it's sort of a bargaining chip. Now that, that's, that's at a diplomatic level. So what was, you know, life like for people on the ground? Um, you know, I already mentioned this, this question of citizenship. And, th and this is such a, a difference because you can see it so clearly. The, the difference between the French and the British colonial systems just becomes so acutely clear in India because you can see them next to each other, right? Otherwise it's a little bit abstract. Um, you know, and of course, France is uh, making like doing everything possible to make sure Muslims in North Africa don't become French citizens. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're they're passing all kinds of laws. But then, you know, it's like, well, but we can do these things in India and it'll like show how good we are. Right. Um, so there is like a degree of calculation there. And um and and how this will help them look good, and that that visibility like that visibility is actually very important, right? Um, because you know the proxy the colonial proxy wars we see in the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth century are like almost always between France and England. <laughs> you know that some other states get in there sometimes, um, but they're really battling um, it out globally. So you do have uh, French Indians becoming citizens, um, and that means they vote. You know, uh, that means that they have different property uh, rights. That means that they have this idea that they could move to France and just fully integrate there. And that's actually most people can't do that because of resources. But, you know, this is compared to um, British India, which has things like, you know, a color line um, for advancement in the Indian civil service. And this is like Aurobindo. Um, you know, was studying for the Indian civil service exam in England when he realized he could never um, become a high rank because of his skin color. And that's what led him to be against the British Empire. Right. Um, and, you know, there is plenty of racism going on um, with the French, but they they um, you know, they have this colorblind policy of the colorblind republic. So it, it it's a way of sort of playing it off and you don't actually get the uh, consequence of, of it very often because people just can't travel to France. It's very far away. You know, people don't have the money to do that. Um, so, uh, so by the time independence comes, you know, then it, then it becomes a much bigger question of what's going to happen next. So uh, in, in while you were talking in your book, um, you portray a kind of hierarchy that existed um, 
within the utopic experiment of Orwell. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we can talk about that um, placement or, or the hierarchy in Orwell, if you could tell us a bit about Aurobindo and Orwell to basically contextualize this part. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I just mentioned Aurobindo. And for those who don't know, I mean, Aurobindo Ghosh, um, Sri Aurobindo Ghosh, often known as, uh, was an incredibly well known uh, freedom fighter. Right. Uh, he was uh, he's been, he was Bengali. He was born in an Anglophile family. Um, so I think from about age five, um, you know, he attended English medium schools. His father spoke English to him. He was sent to England young um, to attend school. He was, um, you know, he was doing all of his training in Greek and Latin and classics um, and doing quite well, right? He was a gifted student. Um, he was doing the whole thing on his way to be a great uh, Indian civil servant. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, the story is that he failed the equestrian exam on purpose so that he um, would sort of be free. <laughs> and he decided, you know, this was the early 20th century, and this is just after the partition of Bengal, um, when he decides, um, you know, I'm going to go fight for the liberation of of India from England. Um, so he becomes he turns it from it, he turns from a sort of privileged Anglophile into this. He goes back to India. Um, he's an educator, he has a newspaper, um, right, that the British are targeting under the seditious materials laws. Um, and he gets involved with these these struggles. Um, for, for independence, uh, mostly, mostly he moves around, he's in Baroda for a while, um, but he's mostly sort of in the North. Uh, and uh, in 1910, um, you know, he had been in and out of courts. Um, he became wanted in the Ella, uh, by the British authorities in the Alipore bombing case where a judge um, had been uh, bombed. And he takes this opportunity to go to Chandranagore, which is one of the French territories just outside of Calcutta. Um, and he gets on a ship and he sails to Pondicherry, <laughs> right? And that's in 1910 and he never leaves. He spends the entire, he uh, passes away in 1950. So he spends the next 40 years um, in Pondicherry, right? So when he gets there in 1910, um, you know, he's this really, really important political figure. Right. And and people start, you know, they come to visit him. He goes there because it's safe from British jurisdiction, again, to see the difference between the areas like there there truly are um, uh, differences in these very small amounts of space. Right. That the British police are not allowed to come in and get him. Um, and, And the French are surveilling him. Right. But they they hold strong against uh, the British forces and say, no, you can't you can't come in here. And, you know, revolution, others start to come to visit him. Um, And within a few years, he decides um, he is going to devote his life to yoga and to philosophy. um, And he sort of retreats. uh, And, you know, uh, there's a lot to say there. There's a great book called The Lives of Sri Aurobindo by Peter Heese that I recommend to people. Um, to read. Uh, and, and the other key person in this, someone I mentioned, a woman named Mira Alfasa, um, who comes to Pondicherry in 1914 with her then husband, Paul Richard, who was a French colonial um, administrator. And they come and they, you know, in Paris, they had already been involved in the occult um, and were interested in things like theosophy. Um, so they're very interested in Orbindo before they come to Pondicherry, um, but they get, they get stationed there. 
and they come um, and and start to work with Aurobindo quite quite quickly. Um, so the ashram isn't actually founded until 1926, but there is, you know, they're living in a house. Uh, Alfasa and Richard um, have to leave because of the war. Um, they go to Japan. They come back after the war. And that is the moment where Mira um, comes to Pondicherry and never leaves again. So she's there until her death. And now I can't remember, 73 or 74. Um, and, you know, the, the, the other thing I'll say about there's a lot to say about the, this history. Um, but the thing I'll say right here, and that's important to me in this study, is what does their presence do to Pondicherry? And that's my question. Um, and if you've been to Pondicherry, you know um, that it is split into, um, it's really, well, a very small area that's right on the sea, um, which was at the time called White Town or the Ville Blanche. Um, and then the rest of Pondicherry is the Ville Noire, the Black Town. So we already see a color line there. And that, that line is actually a sewage canal. So it's a very smelly line. <laughs> Um, and so if you've been there, you know, you'll know that the white town, which uh, now on the maps is Heritage Town, is uh, very nice, right? French style architecture. Um, you have um, just, you know, grid like streets. Everything's clean. All of the resources. I mean, and of course, 2021 is a lot different than then. But that is when um, that area really sort of um became a center point and the ashram owns a lot of the property there right so that starts around this period where they start to acquire property um so some of it is you know guest houses for the ashram but you know i think they own a gas station for a long time in pondicherry they were the only um they were the only place that owned a car right so they they become really this like center of of you know first of all it's 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 enclosed right it's because um, you have to be sort of let into the ashram. Um, there, is, there is some oversight of who's being let in. And it's also very close to the French consulate, right? So the other things that are in that area are the French government buildings. I mean, today the consulate, but, you know, the city hall and all of these places. Um, so, you know, all of the, the governors who governed in French India, they really relied on, on the ashram, um, to sort of give them information and to work with them. Um, so, you know, the ashram always said they were apolitical. That was their thing. We don't do politics, right? Even though Aurobindo was this huge figure, um, you know, he would say, like, I think everybody should be free. Like, of course, India should be liberated. But, you know, now we, we're, we're interested in evolution of, of the human mind and body. Um, that was sort of their thing um, in, a, in a practice called integral yoga. Um, so, so they have this real, what I argue is they have this real connection with the French government, right? Um, so, okay, so um, India's independent in 47, uh, Aurobindo passes away in 1950, and the mother starts to focus, more and more people are living in the ashram, the mother starts to focus more on this project that she calls Auroville. Um, and, uh, so, you know, her and they, Aurobindo and the mother and like thought of this together, but it's really her project and, mo you know, everything happens after he, he passes away. Um, so, you know, he, he, to the people there, he remains an important force, but it's really the, oh, I also didn't say that, um, it's around 1926 where people start calling her the mother <laughs> also. So Alfalsa becomes the mother. Um, and, and the idea is to acquire some land. 
um, and creates uh, what they call an experiment in living, right? Um, this utopian community um, that would be devoted to what they call the divine, which is, um, or the divine consciousness, which is um, ideas that are integral to, to the mother and Ouroboros, sort of um, way of bringing about unity and peace on earth. Okay, there's a lot more to say about that. People actually work on their, their thought, which is um, sort of not, not my number one thing. But um, okay, so Oroville is founded in 1968. So that's 18 years after Orobindo passes, right? Quite a bit of time. Pondicherry um, and the, the, the four of the French territories are um, officially free from France in 1962, although they had agreed to leave in 1954. Okay, so uh, 68 then Oroville is established. Um, and it's really seen by the mother and people in the ashram as a little bit less of an ascetic spiritual space than the ashram is, which is really devoted to a life of, of study. Um, and Oroville is actually meant to be a functioning city. Um, so, you know, it's, they, it's envisioned as a, to look like a galaxy. It's supposed to have a monorail. It doesn't have a monorail. Um, it's supposed to have all of these, uh, universities and, um, experiments in ecology and like forest preservation and organic farming and industry. Um, so some of that has lasted, um, or has come through and some of it just was never, I mean, they want, they wanted to have 50,000 people. And they've, you know, for the past two decades, they've been between 2,000 and 3,000. And part of this is because they can't acquire any more land, which is, I think, getting, after a very long time, to your question about hierarchy in Oroville, um, which, which is that, you know, this is, it's, it's interesting, Oroville is not in Pondicherry. Parts of it are, little parcels of it actually are, because in 1962, after the French have left, the boundaries of French India remain in place today, except for Chandanagar, which voted to join the union in 49. The rest of the boundaries in all of the four territories remain today um, as governed under the union territory of Puducherry. Um, so they're actually governed at the federal level. They're not part of their surrounding states. So if you look at on Google map, um, you can actually see the little parts that are in Puducherry. But most of the land was then um, purchased from farmers um, and villagers in Tamil Nadu, right? Um, so it, it's interesting because, again, the space becomes so important here um, because, you know, the other thing that happened on these borders, right, between India and French India and British India is that there were factories um, that the British and the French ran and workers sort of had to cross the border to go to work there. Right. So there was always this sort of sense of um, both mobility and um, and and sort of a lack of mobility going on between these spaces um, that, that, you know, it makes space seem very visible in a way it isn't otherwise because you have like fences in places where you wouldn't expect a fence. Right. Or you have just these borders. Um, you need a beginning in sort of the 1930s, you need an identity card to cross the village, right? So people start to like be surveilled and seen in ways they hadn't been seen before. So, you know, Oroville comes in 68 and the people that come sort of act like uh, the like colonialism is very far in the past, right? This is a, this is the future. This is about newness. Everybody gets to um, sort of benefit from this project. 
But what you had just have is sort of basic dispossession, right? They come in, they buy land very cheap from people. Um, and then they create the society that people can't join, right? Um, and one of the reasons is because they need to hire them as laborers, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a huge emphasis um, in sort of popular remembering of Oroville about how the people came from the West and, and other parts of India, it's not just Westerners, to build Oroville. Um, and then, you know, if you look at the remembrances and the oral histories, every, you know, you have all of these French and German and Italians and Americans saying, yeah, we got there and it was super hot and it looked really hard. And then we realized we could hire these women from the village for like nothing. It was pennies to us. Right. I mean, one of the uh, descriptions says you could hire these ummas and they looked like ants. Right. Just horribly colonial de- dehumanizing language. But it's, you know, and, and you know, they, there might be some regret about it today, <laughs> but it didn't stop anything. Right. Um, so it's well, and, and, and this has continued. Right. Um, the local people are the laborers in Oroville. Right. Um, and and. So, you know, it creates it creates this hierarchy that I think you're asking about, right? Yes. Um, that a lot of people, I mean, the other the other reasoning you get from people is just like half of Oroville is Indians. Well, okay, but who are they, right? Um, and almost none of them are local. And I know everyone who listens to your program knows that you know India is an incredibly diverse place. And to have people coming from Bombay and have people come from Delhi and all of these places. Um, and then just sort of say, oh, we're Indians. We're like, um, you know, this is our native space in rural Tamil Nadu. It's like, no, it's really not. <laughs> you know, so so what does that say about actually decolonization? What does that say about the making of modern India? Right. Um, OK, I, I yeah. talked so long there also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of the um, questions also was, um, in this understanding of hierarchy, mm. what was the kind of influence of the caste system, if there was even any, to like, mm. how was caste system playing a role here? In, well, in Pondicherry, um, I have a good answer for that. In Oroville, less so. Um, but okay. but, but uh, for, for Pondicherry, mm-hmm. you know, um, the French, the prospect of French citizenship was very important uh, for low caste and Dalit peoples. Right. Um, and this is I mean, we can see similarities in British India where for people um, of, of low caste and Dalit peoples who converted to Christianity. And you actually see that a lot in French India, too, that a lot of the Catholic conversions um, are people who are sort of trying to get out of caste. Right. Um, and what what happens and this is, um, you know, starting when the citizenship you like people say, oh, well, you know, I can be French that then I'll, I'll then I won't be part of this anymore. Right. Um, and of course, local, um, you know, high caste Brahmin, or Brahm, not just Brahmins, but um, upper caste um, Hindus in Pondicherry didn't want to have anything to do with this. Um, and so sort of used the courts to um, continue segregationist policies. Um, so, you know, in the Catholic churches, you immediately saw um, sections being set up for, you know, the, this is the outcast section of the. Of, so even if you now had a French name, and your whole family had taken on French citizenship, like nobody allowed you to not be seen within your caste limits. So yeah. again, really similar um, to what happens in British India with, with religious conversion. Um, I, I, I think, you know, around independence, 
Uh, there's somebody I talk about in the book named Adala, who was a low caste man who um, worked for the French police out of, um, he was in, Car- uh, sorry, in Yanam is where he, uh, one of the other territories in Andhra. Uh, and he, he's, he's one of the people that really spoke of France as a potential utopian space. Even though he, he fought for the independence of India, of French India, he then after independence sort of said, um, you know, I fought for this, but now I realize that I am so oppressed in India because of my caste that, you know, this is actually not my homeland. So maybe France is my homeland. And I don't think he ever moved there. I actually, I couldn't trace him much after his, um, his memoir, but it seems like he stayed in India, but he really sort of longed for France, thinking that it would be a place where he could finally be free of caste. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I, I just wanted to discuss a bit about um, the image of uh, Aurobindo and its association with the idea of Orwell. Um, and, uh, you know, this, well, well, we had early prime ministers visiting Orwell. And in, in that instance of prime ministers of India visiting Orwell, was was there a sense of you know communal atmosphere that was prevalent, and was it in any case a political um, strategy of of them visiting that? Yeah, so Orville was really um, really committed to gaining international backing. So before they even broke ground, they worked really hard to be recognized by UNESCO. Right. So they um, they wanted to get the support of sort of an international community because their um, their whole thing is to be an international township, which, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's a very interesting tension in Oroville because they you know, they 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 were really part of the sort of 1960s global citizen movement. And some of this actually stems from the issues that the ashram, this, this will be about prime ministers, I promise, um, that the ashram, people living in the ashram had around independence was that, um, you know, they had been living there under a colonial India. They had to figure out how they could stay, right, because they weren't Indian citizens. So how are they going to stay? They no longer sort of had the blanket approval to live there that they was given them with whatever, um, you know, imperial citizenship that they had. And, you know, this is the, you know, 1940s, 1950s. This is really the era where um, citizenship rights um, come into being in a lot of ways. So, um, so, you know, there's the campaigns letter writing campaigns in the ashram um, before the independence of French India, lobbying Nehru to allow dual citizenship, right? They want, um, they want to be able to be French and Indian at the same time, mostly for residency purposes, but it takes on um, more of a, I'd say almost spiritual quality, right? Where they say sort of, I belong to India. I clearly belong here. Yet I also like of this is what the mother would say. I'm also of France, right? And I love the French language and history and language, and I'm a part of all of this. Um, so I really am a dual person, right? So <laughs> Nehru said no um, to, to all, all of this. But so they, you know, and they had kind of lost out on dual citizenship. So it became sort of an international thing, right? Uh, we don't, you know, nobody belongs anywhere. And the tension comes in where Orville is actually organized around the idea of national cultures, 
So within Oroville, you have all of these pavilions and the pavilions are based on national cultures, like a French pavilion, an Indian pavilion, um, a Spanish pavilion, right? So it actually is this idea that there are certain attributes um, that are related to um, what, what become national cultures. So it's sort of this idea, it, it's really kind of the, the idea of modern India in a way, it's like the unity, unity and diversity, right? Um, idea. So, uh, so they, you know, they ask UNESCO for support. They um, get Nehru to come to Oroville in the ashram. They get Indira Gandhi. Part of it is that, you know, Aurobindo was such an important person, right? So Aurobindo has passed away, but this is Aurobindo's ashram. This is Aurobindo's project. Um, so in, in sort of the celebration of post, like creating post-colonial India, um, celebrating these independence heroes was a really important part of that. Um, so, you know, part of it is playing, paying homage to Aurobindo and celebrating the project um, that he had started there. And, you know, the mother and the and Aurobindo really had this East meets West thing going on, right? Um, which I don't know, I, I think is fairly uninteresting at this point in time, but it was like a real uh, product of the moment, right? Where this sort of Orientalist ideas of what the East is um, meets, um, you know, same Orientalist ideas of the West and, but we can build a bridge between them and that's what Oroville should do. So it's actually like a real binary relationship, but that that's how they get the prime ministers there, right? Um, but this continues on. That's why I asked if you mean present or in the past, because Modi went there um, for the Jubilee for the 50th anniversary. And this was his first trip to French India or former French India. So first um, trip to Puducherry was to go to Oroville, right? So that that's interesting. Um, yeah. And, and uh, he went to the Jubilee and talked about how Oroville was exactly what India should be like. Right. So you get this real um, narrative coming out. And it's not just from Modi. It's a very popular narrative that they have done something right. You know, my argument is that like they did it by leaving people like by creating this controlled environment where local people couldn't be there <laughs> except as workers, which. Yeah, except as workers. Yes. Yeah. So uh, one of the next questions where, uh, again, I wanted to ask was about um, communal ideas um, or basically communal aspects between British India um, and, and French India. So in, in continuation to the previous question, uh, the proliferation of Aurobindo and uh, mother's idea of spiritualism and how would you place this in the broader picture of communal um, through things happening in under British India? And, you know, especially in the 1920s and 30s, there was this time of where communal aspects in British India was taking an extreme, uh, you know, it, it was taking a very dreadful shape and face. Things in French India seem quite opposite. So if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, French India today has a, and part of uh, has about a million people today, right? Which, but it was much smaller than. There's just um, the populations were not um, sort of at the level um, where you saw the divisions going on in other parts of India to a, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, there were different things that were dividing people. I mean, some of it was caste based. Um, um, you know, there is uh, there was certainly a Muslim population in French India. Um, it's it was fairly small. Um, 
And I think there's some people doing some work on that right now. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing I'll say about it, I guess, is even for, um, even for just the South of India, right. Um, especially sort of Tamil Nadu and, and Kerala, it's just a, a, a little bit of a different makeup, right. Um, demographic makeup, um, so you don't sort of see the kind of politicking around that. Like it's more about the anti-caste, the anti-Brahmin movement, um, like the Dravidian politics that are going on in Tamil Nadu at the time um, take primacy in, in terms of um, what people are thinking about um, in terms of, of political discourse. Um, and the other thing I'll say is you know, in, around the sort of communal division issue is that after independence, the mother is almost always seen in front of a giant map of undivided India. Like that's up in the ashram. She says it's apolitical, but you like, you can't tell anyone then sitting in front of a map in front of undivided India is apolitical, right? Especially um, after 1947. Um, so there's certainly like a stance being taken there, right? Um, in, in terms of a part the partition line. Um, yeah. Another uh, idea that I wanted to um, connect with is how you mentioned in a book about Utopianism was or became a colonial um, impulse. So mm -hmm. there continues to be, I, I don't know, with, with, with foundations like Isha, um, with Sadhguru and, and the others alike, the kind of run on this idea of creating a utopia. Yeah. Um, maybe not as, uh, you know, not as clearly pictured as Auto with. Um but this impulse of having a utopia, do you think it is inherently colonial in nature? I don't think the idea is inherently colonial. I think the practice has been. I think history has shown us that the practice of creating something like a utopian community um, has tended towards and what I would call, and I call in the book, I call it settler utopianism in the book because I'm trying to signal it's not, I mean, it's not a mercantile colonialism, right? Um, and it, it's about a colonialism that is all encompassing, which is what a settler colonialism is, right? Um, so it's not, you know, it's not quite that project. They're not state projects. Although, I mean, and I don't do this work, but I think, you know, there is arguments to be made about the USSR um, and and what happens, especially in Central Asia, right? Um, to think about about that being a settler, settler colonialism, um, and certainly around the utopian ideas of, of communism. Um, but you know, especially in this instance, and and other ones too. You but you see them often in the settler colonies, like the United States, like Australia, like New Zealand, like South Africa, um, where you you have. Um, sort of a, a demographic divide in it, people coming from elsewhere. So it's, it's actually interesting to see in India, right? Because India is not a settler colony at all, right? Like the British never had enough presence to make, to make that place a settler colony. Um, so, you know, so it's interesting to see people that are steeped in these narratives of settler colonialism as a heroic pursuit you know, this this is the the story of the United States, um, right? It is one of um, the heroism of, of settling the West, right? Of settling the New World, 
um, to see people that were that grew up in, with that narrative um, come to a place like India and then employ it to justify, you know, a better tomorrow without ever thinking about that past of the people right there. Right. What happens is the subjects, the people that live there are just completely disregarded. Right. As sort of non-political actors. Right. Um, they're dismissed as people without a history, which is exactly what the colonial project was. You know, you're able to colonize people because you see them as a people without a history. Um, so I think the 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 impulse to say, well, we you know, it's it's paternalistic. Right. It's um, it's um, really uses in this case the language of sort of 1960s, 1970s development. Right. Um, to establish itself, but with this spirituality attached to it. And that's given this um, this sort of pass in a way, because it's seen as something that's going to be for the better good. But that's what colonialism did, too. Right. It said, I mean, you know, you still get these narratives today. Well, you know, they built they built the trains. <laughs> um, right. So. You know, obviously there was some good there, um, but it's, you know, it's not, it's never a holistic picture and it never looks at material consequences. Yeah. Um, So one of the things I wanted to talk about was about settlers in um, colonial uh, French India. And, um, you know, kind of like trying to understand how are they seen? How do they see themselves in that space? And at the same time, what what does French India means to France and the French Empire at large? Yeah. So, do you mean now in Oroville or in the? Um, no, just in general, as in in, in colonial France. Okay. When when India was colonized, sorry, colonial India. Okay. What did French India mean to France? Like. Because we have this narrative of how British India was like the jewel in the crown of yeah, England. Yeah. Like, what, how how was India seen? Yeah, so I have, a, I have a few answers to that. I think that's a that's a great question. Um, so for, first, I'll just say, like I, the French never had that many people in French India. Um, so there, you know, the for me the settler question is about Orville. It's not about. Um, French India. So it was always civil servants, right? It was like people rotating in and out. There were a few families, but it's pretty, pretty minimal. Um, Okay. So France, um, you know, India just has a huge place in the French imagination. And again, I mean, I think this is easily read through, you know, Edward Said's Orientalism um, to think about what it meant um, to have people on the ground doing anthropology, doing philology, like understanding, you know, one of the great books on great books on caste is Louis Dumont's um, book on, on caste in India, which is a French um, anthropologist, sociologist, maybe anthropologist. Um, you know, so there, France might not rule in India, but they're producing knowledge about India. And, you know, they actually create sort of a special relationship in the South. Um, because of this, this holding. So you actually can see this in the in the way the uh, the topics the French Academy has sort of chosen to um, to focus on has has often been related to South India because of their presence there. So you can always see how the colonial project 
goes in there. But this idea of, of France sort of failing in India um, is really important, um, actually. Um, it's something that France had sort of had to reckon with. So, you know, there's a, if you meet someone, um, you know, above the age of 60 or so in France, they can recite the five French colonies in India to you. Because it was part of this like song that people sing at school where they would recite all the areas of the French empire. Right. So it's, you know, if you have this <laughs> centuries long um, rivalry with England to say, like, we are in India, too. Right. And we, you know, France's tourist industry in French India today is is very important. Um, not, you know, not economically so much. It is in the area, but, um, you know, there's a direct flight from Paris to Chennai. It's like the only direct flight out of Europe that goes to Chennai, right? So to, to keep this tie, um, and even, you know, Nehru and um, Aurobindo really talked upon, um, like, thinking about what it would look like for French India to be to be independent. And, and the question about retaining a French presence in India was really important to people in French India. So they wanted there to be um, um, intellectual institutions. So the French Institute of Pondicherry is there today and that's paid for by the French government. Um, it's like a very well-funded, um, you know, it's a nice place for research too. And they do all kinds of research, right? They do um, archeology span and language work and um, lots of scientific work at the French Institute. So France is still putting quite a bit of money um, into these, these institutions. Um, so there's actually several French um, institutions in Pondicherry today. Um, so, you know, this was, again, this is part of the negotiation where it's like, well, Brit in England's going to sort of forever be our enemy. <laughs> um, you know, the, the question we haven't talked about Goa, but the, the Portuguese were still there also, but they were, you know, under a dictatorship. So India wasn't negotiating with them. <laughs> And this was actually tricky for Nehru because he wanted to create this post-colonial diplomatic relationship with France. Like it was important, right, to have a good relationship with a strong power in Europe, obviously. Um, and if England's out, you know, France is really the next the next step. But it was difficult because, uh, you know, Nehru also wanted to support independence in Indochina and Algeria. Right. And there's actually demonstrations in Pondicherry, mostly by students. Um, you know, against French imperialism in Indochina um, and a little less in Algeria because, because things change. But, you know, so that, that was something that he had to negotiate a, a lot of the time there. Um, so, you know, France is actually important to India and India is important to France <laughs> um, in that sense um, that they, they do want to have these ties with each other. Um, but this, this just looked different for people who were French Indian a lot of the time. Right, because their their sort of desires weren't really taken into account there. Yeah. Um, also, coming to your last chapter um, from from the ashram to Orville in in this un, in in the in a part of making, um, you talk about how utopia is seen as a settlement. Um, parts of it we've covered through the conversation, but if you could, um, you know, give us an idea as to this idea of settlement and and, and utopia. What was the connection that the audience can draw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Oroville uh, founded in 1968, and this is the era of communes, right? Uh, 60s counterculture, communes are starting all over the place. Um, and, and the reason I call it a settlement, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of shifting the way we look at it. And this, this you know, it, this came to me just through reading um, accounts in the Oroville archives of 
people who were there when it was founded and what the experience of building it was like. And it just read to me like directly as a settler colonial project. <laughs> Again, not, not, not coming from the state. So that is a big difference, but a project of settlement in the sense that they wanted to create something new um, out of land that was new to them. Right. And that's actually, that's where the utopianism part comes in too. Right. Because you can't create utopia in a land that you already know. Right. And utopias by definition need to be somewhere, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a no place. So they're not supposed to exist. <laughs> but right, but th- th- how do you make a no place? Right. You go to somewhere that is completely foreign to you. Right. And so where the settlement comes in is that the lack of acknowledgement that just because it's not known to you doesn't make it known to anybody. Right. Um, so, you know, it's a question of, yes, they, they purchased the land, but it's not like they were asking permission to do this project, right? It's, it's not, a, there's no acknowledgement that, you know, this land is more than property, right? That it's part of people's history, that it's part of like people's livelihood, that it's the way that people live day to day. And so, you know, if you bring in new employers um, who aren't like technically state colonizers anymore, what is that, what does that make them? Right. I also use the word settlement because the people in Oroville call themselves pioneers, right? Like this isn't yeah. language I'm giving them. They use it themselves, you know, and that, that's actually why I think it's really important, important A, to take people's politics on the, on the face of it, right? They, they use this language and I, and I, it's not reflect self-reflexive at all because I don't think they think there's any problem with it. Right. And again, this is this has to do with the sort of being raised in the in a in the narratives that this is this is a heroic mission. You know, people say, like, I gave up my family. I gave up. You know, a lot of these people were incredibly privileged people. They had like gone to Harvard. Their families were, you know, wealthy, the wealthy elite of the United States and of Australia and all these places. And so it's like seen, you know, you drop it all and you go to India (laughs) Right. But what are you really giving up? And, you know, it's it's certainly not for the people in India. I'll tell you that much. You know, it's not, you know, and even when it becomes sort of development projects, they're enclosed. Right. So there's so what it does um, is sort of it reinscribes this discourse that local people don't know how to take care of the land. Right. So it has nothing. You know, there's no. um engagements with sort of local um, caste politics or the politics of uh, dispossession through um, state means or what happened under the British empire, right? It's just like, this is the world we live in and we come and we buy the land and then like, we're gonna do this and it will benefit you someday because perhaps your children or grandchildren will go to our schools, right? Um, so so that's, that's, that's a settlement. That's a settlement and it's imbued with this sort of spiritual utopianism that comes with it. Fascinating. Um, actually, one of the things that I wanted to talk about and I um, kind of want to end, end the conversation uh, with this was your book talks about um, the decolonization process and especially about how the bureaucratic process of transferring power was very rarely aligned with the kind of local vision of decolonization. If you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, and you know, especially um, in this time and space, right? uh, This is about independence. Sometimes that independence is anti-colonial and sometimes it isn't. It's just about sovereignty, right? 
And, uh, you know, if we think about what decolonization means in terms of a bureaucratic process and that, you know, the word really originates um, in the late 19th century with bureaucracy, right? It's like, if, if you're not going to be governed directly anymore, what does that process look like to transfer power? But decolonization really beginning, um, you know, in the 1950s, but really in the 1960s, especially with the publication of Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, becomes this radical process, a project, right? And so it, it, it's imbued with a new meaning, um, especially sort of in the French context where all these people are fighting liberation movements from Algeria to all, all the parts of Southern Africa in the 1960s and 70s. Um, so decolonization becomes about something much more, right, than transfer of power. Because if we think about what it means in the Fanonian sense, if we think about what it means for liberation movements that happen a little bit later, it's not about the transfer of power, it's about the dismantling of systems, right? And, and so in this case, um, you know, negotiations between France and India are certainly not about the dismantling of systems, it's about the transfer of power. Right. But the people on the ground often were like thinking about what it meant to dismantle borders. Right. Um, and I, I get into this, you know, in some areas of the book, with talking about what it meant to have those identity cards. Right. And you have people are, that are like try, they're fighting for independence. So, you know, there's they're switching back between Indian and British and French and like they've got all these passports. I, I don't think I, this might be in a footnote um, that M.N. Roy, the founder of the Indian Communist Party, often told people he was French Indian. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, people sort of used it all the time, actually. And, and this actually this is a way to push back against systems. Right. To say, like, I don't it doesn't matter to me. Right. Um, so it's not surprising you have a communist saying this, right? That they, they're sort of eschewing national identity. But that is a way to think about dismantling the system of, um, of relating your own personal identity with a nation state, right? Or the idea of a national identity or culture to say like, this is a legal document. It's gonna get me from point A to point B. I don't, you know, I don't have to have this deep devotion to one of these spaces, right? Um, in order to sort of fight for what I want it, what I want to see in the world. Um, so that that looks more like decolonization to me in that sense than transfer of power, right? Um, so these these things, um, you know, the state the states didn't care about that very much. <laughs> you know, they were they weren't interested in that. They were interested in you know, India was interested in being a powerful state. Right. That's what you want with your sovereignty. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the reason it becomes um, sort of so pronounced French India is it's this really small space and, or, and small disjointed spaces, but they kind of yield a great power. I mean, it's if you think about these four disparate areas being yeah. one federated union, that's actually like really rare. Yeah. And, interesting. and people there vote. They if they are French citizens, they vote in French, French elections. You know, the consulate comes and they set up voting booths in Pondicherry, you know, and there's like politicking that goes on there. Um, so there, there is like the sense of exception. And France actually promoted that, um, you know, when they wanted people to join the French Union. But they said, you know, if you have these um, diplomats saying, well, we need to tell the people of French India, if they become part of India, they're just going to get lost. They're like no longer mm -hmm. special or unique. Right. Mm -hmm. So you keep this, keep this relationship and then say, you know, we, we're different. 
like it's 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 important to stand out in, in that sense. And you know, yeah. that, that has worked actually to a certain extent. Quite remarkably. So yeah, it it has. Um so talking about that, how does your work become relevant in understanding contemporary parts of you know colonized French uh, yeah, French colonized India, like current aspects like how how is it relevant you know i i think um it's 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 just drawing on what i was just talking about i actually think it's really interesting to think about the people in french india that remain french that have the passports that do the voting you know a certain amount of them and there's circulation between france and Pondicherry, you know, it used to be a little bit more because uh, people had served in the military during the wars mm-hmm. and they had pensions, but most, if not all of those people have died now, but their descendants are going back and forth. People like, you know, people want to marry someone from French India. <laughs> so there's all kinds of issues related to that. But I think it remains um Again, sort of this decolonial move in a way, you know, to say I'm going to live in French India and be a French citizen, even though I'm like a Tamil speaking, dark skinned person who may or may not ever go to France. Right. I mean, I just think it's a really interesting subject position to hold. Um, And you have these like French political clubs and people that get really involved in in the elections um, and thinking about the politics of France. And, you know, it's it gives you, um, you know, it sort of skews or changes the framework of your relationship to what the what being Indian is, because there's like there's no way you can tell those people they're not also Indian. Right. Even if the state. Still, you know, if the state would do a dual citizenship, this would kind of cease to be a problem, actually. But, um, but you know, that's not that's not happening. So, you know, it it actually is a pushback, especially when we have, you know, a regime in India today that's so all encompassing of what it means to be an Indian, right? And and increasingly so with the passing of citizenship laws, the CAA, and increasing amounts of moving to the Hindu right. Right. And, and making it one thing and to have these sort of French Indians. I and, mean, you know, some of their politics are very conservative. Um, the people in French India, I'm not suggesting yeah. it's like all some sort of radical leftist movement. It is not at all. But it is it is a way of sort of saying, um, yeah, like I can be Indian and not not be those things at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's sort of fascinating to see in that sense. Yeah. Um, so that brings us to. Uh, the end of the conversation about the book. But uh, something that I do want to ask you is what would you suggest to people who want to explore? Um, you know, so, so one of the things that I've seen, especially when it comes to colonial understanding or colonial legacy in India, a lot is concentrated on British. Um, I mean, quite evidently because of the influence that they've had. But in somewhere, I think the spaces or conversations about French colonial influences and uh, Portuguese colonial influences are kind of suppressed. So for someone who wants to um, engage themselves in spaces of French colonial India, or maybe just South Asian studies in general, colonial studies in general, mm-hmm. what would your suggestion to be to someone who's just starting out? 
Well, I, I, I think um, in the field of South Asian studies, there is beginning to be a move to look at um, other parts of South Asia. <laughs> and, you know, I, we're still talking about India here, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I hope there's moves to, of course, look at the many, many other regions and mm-hmm. um, places of South Asia, too. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think, I, I, you know, and I'll say I should have maybe said this in, in your first question about influences. Like, I, I really think I wrote this book because I am diasporic, <laughs> right? I think this really comes from my own relationship to India um, in a lot of spaces, mm-hmm. my, my, in a lot of ways, my thinking about this, right? Um, because I grew up in the United States. I was born in Minnesota. Um, I didn't go to India until I was in my 20s, right? Um, and, um, you know, so my, my relationship was very, you know, cultural, but cultural through the diaspora, Right. I think that's a really common experience for people, um, you know, whether that's in London or whether that is in the Caribbean or whether that is in East Africa. Right. That what you understand about um, India and, and what happens then when you have that cultural relationship is that it is um, it's pretty static. Right. Like you don't under because it, it's like from your parents and your aunts and uncles, yeah. and your grandparents and who have left. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's a little bit different now because it's so easy to go back and forth and people can FaceTime and WhatsApp and all these things. So it's, you know, but, you know, I was born in 1979 and it was, you know, we didn't go. It was really expensive. You know, we couldn't all just go to India. You just couldn't. Yeah. Do it. Um, so, you know, it was my aunts and uncles came from India, stayed at our house in Minnesota, brought VHS and beta tapes with them of movies. You know, we got them from the Indian grocery store, like going in there with my dad to rent movies, <laughs> my introduction to Shah Rukh Khan. You know, so all of this comes from there. And, you know, so I was really interested in, you know, like what is my relationship to this space? And I think people doing sort of diaspora studies related to South Asia is becoming much more um a little well, maybe not much more but it's becoming a little more prominent and i think that's really important um in in understanding actually these variations because like not only do we not talk about french india we don't talk about french indians right there is yeah. you know a huge amount of french not huge but a significant number of french indians who live in france like how much yeah. do you hear about that diaspora <laughs> right um so there's all sort of all these sort of different ways of being south asian right you know, if your grandparents came from um, came from uh, Kenya, right, and nobody had lived in India for three generations, what's your relationship to it? Um, so I, I think, um, you know, if people are interested in this kind of thinking, that's actually a good place to go um, is to, to think about um, not just South Asia as a static place, but about the diaspora and relationship to it. Yeah. So um, any engagements that you would suggest to um, people who want to engage, like works, books, even podcasts? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For French India, um, people should read the work of the novelist Ari Gautier. It's Mm -hmm. G-A-U-T-I-E-R. And his novels are in French, except one was just translated, the Tenai, Mm T-H-I-N-N-I-A. So Mm -hmm. definitely read that. Um, There is a documentarian named Pankash Kumar. Um, who has made a trilogy about French India. Um, and two, uh, two Flags is um, about sort of these elections that take place and, um, okay. and people's relationships. So highly recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, you know, I really like um, some of the work coming out of um, of the diaspora, thinking about the Caribbean um, and its its relationship to this. I really like the book Coolie Woman um, yeah. by Gatra Bahudra. Is that her name? Um, sorry, uh, you know, I think that's that's a good one to look at. Um, Pamela Gupta's work on Goa is fantastic. Um, so those are all sort of good places to start, I think. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I, I, I make sure that I add them in the description. Okay. Um, so before we end the conversation, the last question that we ask everyone is, what is, it, what is your current project you're working on? Um, what can our listeners and viewers keep an eye out for coming out? work coming from you. Yeah, there's two things I'm thinking about, and they uh, both really have to do with this utopian question. So one is I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um, both Oroville and Chandigarh, um, mm-hmm. the utopian, socialist utopian experiment. I want to think about them together um, as um, like projects of sort of the same moment, both with French architects, actually, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and sort of what their their visions of what the future looked like sort of meant mm-hmm. for, for South Asian space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm, I'm working on expanding this settler utopianism uh, concept by looking mm-hmm. at um, other sort of spiritual settlements um, in South Asia and uh, abroad sort of led by South Asian spiritualists. Um, to think yeah. about what's um, going on with that. <laughs> yeah, it's a very intriguing, very interesting yeah. place to uh, interact with. So thank you so much for joining us on Gushtiku, um, Dr. Jessica, and we were glad to have you on the podcast. And hopefully we get to engage more with your work more often in the future. Often, thank, thank you so much for joining it. Thank you so much, Omar. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this conversation. We really hope you enjoyed this. And if you did, please consider subscribing to our channel and podcast for more such amazing content. There is a series of such amazingly curated interactions with authors and scholars on the history of the subcontinent. Check out our website, www.indiacolonized.com, for more blogs and podcasts exploring the tales of India's contemporary history. Do follow us on our social media sites for more exciting updates. Until next time, stay safe and stay curious.